Hey, Gabriel Lake. Hey, Gabriel Jose. Where are we today? Um, I'm sitting on my couch in San Francisco. And I'm sitting in my chair in Chicago. <laughs> what was that? A little, a little foreshadowing? Exactly, foreshadowing of what is about to come. <laughs> um, yeah, so... What I if it like was? shouldn't discuss the weather we should discuss discuss ukraine but let's not this is a fun podcast <laughs> and the funny thing is like uh we're mentioning ukraine right now but just giving how things happen here is like i don't know maybe when this podcast goes out maybe we are like just talking about like florida being nuke maybe ukraine won't exist when this podcast comes out we don't know <laughs> yeah that's like the magic of these last couple of years. This has been like anything can happen. Um, <laughs> nothing of it is good. <laughs> so, I'd love to go through just one year in the 2020s where we don't experience something they'll be teaching in history classes for like the next 100, 200 years. That would be great. Yeah, it makes you think that it's like we live a very boring existence before 2020. You know, we sure did. Like, there were like some conflicts. I mean, it's true that there's, you know, like disappear the berlin wall everything the cold war ending but beyond that is that what happened after 91 to 2020 radio well, I mean, there was 9-11 and oh that's true yeah. <laughs> but whatever <laughs> oh you americans you always make it about yourselves <laughs> no that's fair that's fair so what did we watch because i don't want to talk about war anymore yeah, uh, we actually. Oh, you're asking me. I never like really prepared for actually answer this, but we watched the 1952 all-time classic, "Singing in the Rain." We sure did. And is this our first musical? I mean, "Dancer in the Dark." I don't really consider it a musical. Uh, Molly Roos. That's right. I always forget that. Didn't we have this discussion last week? Yeah, we do. Every single yeah, week when we talk about like watching a musical, you tell me, I don't like musicals. And like, this is not going to be the first one. And you always say that it's like, oh, yeah, that's right. We actually talk about like those two cannibal mermaids. But we didn't record. Yes, this is all okay. coming back. Yeah, yeah. Record about that. And yeah, and actually, this was my peak. Now, thinking about it, I'm not completely sure where did I go with this. I'm not trying to excuse myself or anything. There will be time or not about that. But uh, we were talking about like how influential was the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know, from a black and white silent film uh, perspective about like how it held its weight even by today's standards, you know. And it made me think about like how... Uh, Singing in the Rain looks at the transition from silent movies to talkies, you know. And at the end, it's a well, I won't say anything. That's the reason why I went with it because I thought that it's like we don't watch too many silent film movies. And I like movies about Hollywood that they talk about that transition. Now, I prefer Sunset Boulevard to this because it makes it from a bit more honest perspective, but sure. It's I mean, this is basically a La La Land remake. Well, a, a remake of La La Land. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, so this, um, this was your pick. And I usually think about the synopsis before I have to, but I didn't do that this time. So you're going to have to help me out. Go ahead. 
So, this film takes place in Los Angeles in the... 20s. 20s, okay. 26. It starts in 26 because it was before the jazz singer that is the first talking ever. And we're introduced to Don Lockwood, played by Gene Kelly, and his quote-unquote girlfriend, which we find out later it's not they're not together it's just the studio wanting them to be more attractive as actors they're um silent scream act, screen actors what was the name of the the girl with the voice the bad voice the, the bad actor. voice uh jean hagen don't see her anyway so yeah, lina, lina lamont was the character there it is, Gene Hagen. Okay, so anyway, Don and Gene are stars of the silver screen, um, but they go to a party in Hollywood by, I think by a studio head. The studio that they work for in the film is fictitious, but I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be Paramount. I think that the movie is from Metro, no? This movie. I don't remember. Yeah, well, we know that it's not, uh, who did uh, jazz, the jazz singer? What a studio was behind it. Wasn't that Warner Bros? I think so. I think there's... Like Warner Bros has their first big talk. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It was Warner. Uh, so we know that it was not the Warner Bros. Yeah, the studio in the in the film is make-believe. But it yeah. sounds a lot like Paramount. It's like Mountain, I don't know, whatever. Anyway, so they go to this party at the studio head's house. And they go to show a movie. And they show basically a, a clip of a man talking. And he's like... This is like pre-recorded. Now we can play sounds with movies, and everyone at the party gets pissed off, and they're like, "No, this will, this is never a, to go. It's a, a gimmick. gimmick. It's not gonna take off." And somebody says, "That's what they said about the horse or the horseless carriage," which I thought was funny. <laughs> <laughs> In 1920, how quaint. <laughs> so Don is making a movie called The Dueling Cavalier. Cavalier, yeah, Dueling yeah. Cavalier. And it's a silent film, and the studio shuts down the production because they're like, look, Warner Bros. just had this huge hit with the talkies. The public is demanding that we have sounds now, or like, you know, dialogue that we can record. Um, and so they're trying to catch up with like the technology, but they're really not good at it. And it turns out that uh, Lena, that's the actress's name. Uh, no, 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 that's the character. The character, yeah. Lena has a hideous, over-the-top Brooklyn accent and can't speak with elocution, and it's, it's just going to be a disaster. So they put together, like, I'm guessing what's a rough cut of the film, and they preview it, and everyone is like, what the hell is this? The audio's messed up. Uh, Lena would never speak into the microphone. Like, it was just a disaster. And so Don's like, oh, wow, I never really had any talent. I skipped a few steps. So, good. Oh, good. <laughs> earlier on in the film, um, Don is going to or from a premiere, and he his car breaks down, and he's mobbed by some fans that rip his tuxedo. So in a panic, he just jumps into a car that's driven by a young woman um, who is named Kathy Sullivan. That is Kathy. played by Debbie Reynolds. Which is crazy. I cannot believe that was Debbie Reynolds. She was gorgeous. Um, so she's very dismissive of him and says that what he does, does isn't real art and that she's a stage actress and that's real acting, blah, blah, blah. Then at the same party where they play the first talkie, she actually jumps out of a cake 
and he realizes that he's a chorus girl. she's just a chorus girl and she he keeps teasing her and she gets super mad and she throws a cake at him but it misses him and hits Lena <laughs> Lena ends up having her fired yeah. and apparently in the 30 minutes they spend together at this party he fell in love with Carly. Basically, it's like she made her rethink all her career as a, I'm not truly an artist and just a clown on the yes. silver screen. So he finds her a few weeks later. They start a romantic relationship, um, but they can't go public because she's not a star and also the studio is saying that he's involved with Lena. So after the failed preview where everyone made fun of the film, the audio, he Don really thought he was done. But then Kathy has this brilliant idea to mix up this period piece as a musical. And they think it's a great idea, but the one problem is Lena can't sing, let alone speak. And so they have this brilliant idea that why don't they have Kathy voice Lena's parts? Mm-hmm. So the studio head agrees to it, but he says, do not tell Lena that this is happening. But of course she finds out and she uses her contract to basically get her way. And she leaks some press um, that basically puts the studio, like t- ties the studio's hands. They, they can't really do anything. Um, and then there's a very, 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 very long dance sequence. Oh my God. <laughs> It just wouldn't quit. Oh my um, God! That's like ten minutes of a ninety-minute. Like, this is. It just keeps going. You mean like the Broadway one? Yes. Like the Corda dance. Oh my God. Mm-hmm. So basically, Lena makes sure that Kathy will basically never act, and she has to continue singing for her and dubbing her lines. And Lena's devastated, and she breaks up with Don for some reason, as if this was his fault. Oh, no, 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 no. Because at some point, uh, when they're doing the premiere of the movie, and everyone's, like, super excited, it's like, Lena gets, like, carried away, and she's going to be, like, just sinking for everyone. Well, she actually speaks, and people are like, but you're not doing the same voice, the same lovely voice from the movie. So... Why don't you sing something? Maybe that's your singing voice. So don't ask uh, David, sorry, uh, Kathy, to actually uh, sing over her voice. So just doing like a ventriloquist kind of move. And she feels like really betrayed by Don. A bit more is like, hey, you are actually accepting that the studio is using me just as a tool for perpetuating Lena's career. Yeah, that's there's always she breaks with him. I think that that's legit about like if your boyfriend or girlfriend tells you is that hey, I think that you should be exploited by the studio. It's like it's more important than your career. Is that you should just break up with them? Don had a, a trick up his sleeve, um, and so after the premiere, the audience loves the new cut of the film. Um, she goes out, she starts lip syncing to Kathy's yeah. voice, but then the studio head. Don and his business partner, or his acting partner, which I actually left out. Uh, he's not that important. He's there mostly to make funny faces. Mm-hmm. Um, they lift up the curtain, and Lena keeps singing, but the entire audience can see, oh, this is actually Kathy singing. And they, both Kathy and Lena, run off the stage embarrassed and humiliated, but then Don gets up, and he says, this is the real star of the show. This is Kathy. And does he, does he mention he loves her at that point? I can't remember. Anyway, and Kathy realizes that this was all a plan and that 
they got Lena out of the way, and then you see a new movie poster where it doesn't show Lena at all. It just shows Dom and Kathy yep. and they kiss. Yep, and I think that it's called like Singing in the Rain. Yeah. Yeah. So that's pretty good summary. You know, I find it hilarious that you didn't even mention uh, uh, Cosmos, his friend, but it's true. Like he's not that important for the story. He's like he adds screen presence, but in terms of plot, he's not. There, there's nothing really to mention about him. He does some funny dances and makes funny faces. And... Yeah, I mean, I have to say that uh, I found the dancing numbers like incredibly entertaining, except that 10 minutes one, the Broadway one. I found it like, what is going on in here? And uh, Honestly, I. I, I thought that I must have missed something. I was like, I rewound it. And I was like, was there like a major plot point that I just missed? No. Well, the thing is that there are like two points where this movie, I'm not going to really say if I like it or not yet, but this movie shows its origins. Uh, that's like one of the points that is like, this doesn't have to do anything with anything else because like this is about a story. They're going to win like a number they want to mix up like the cavalier theme with something more modern that happens on Broadway or nowadays. And it's like, but this is taking place in Los Angeles. It's like nothing talks about New York or Broadway at all in this movie. It feels like from some some other movie, you know? And the other one is like this number where there is a guy singing and he started like just talking about like the fashion of women, women's fashion. That is what made me like rethink what am I missing? <laughs> I mean, I understand that like, they say, it's like, hey, look, now cinema is going crazy with sound, similar to what happened with uh, with colors, too. That's even, this movie is, like, super saturated with colors. You know, it's like they went also, like, quite a bit crazy. But uh, at that point, they have, like, this collage of 30 seconds about, like, different musical numbers, and then they just stick to this musical number that doesn't have to do anything with the story of the movie nothing at all with guys that they are not even like part of the story it's like a random guy that is just singing a song that doesn't have to do anything with nothing i agree i ultimately i i saw it as a love letter to hollywood and musicals and like where film headed from that point and there's a lot of scenes leading up like um when Don finally reconnects with Kathy and he wants to tell her that he loves her, he basically makes a movie set, or they're on a movie set and he paints this picture and sings about how he's in love with her. Like clearly the filmmakers loved musicals, loved film. And I think that was just a 10 minutes of indulgence they allowed themselves to be like, look what film turned into. Well, but you know how this movie came to be. I don't. Tell me. I really don't. Well, I mean, I had to say that it's like when the, the number about Broadway was happening, it's like, hey, look, this is starting to feel, now that I think about it, is that this movie was made with the leftovers of other musicals. Is that they basically had like a huge back catalog of musicals that they never completed, you know, like pieces from different musicals and even like whole musicals that they never did anything with it. And they basically says like, hey, you know what we can do? Just a movie with some of these songs is just go crazy so they actually gave it to a couple of the directors or screenwriters i said just bring a story that they can connect all of these and that's the reason why almost none of the songs make reference to stuff that is happening on the movie per se oh. 
and what it feels like a bit more of a popery, you know, a mix of a this this doesn't make any sense. But it's what you said, is like how you can make this work is like making the overarching narrative being like a love letter to the golden age of musicals that it just happened at the point it was like hey you remember like 10 years ago when everything was a musical or the last 20 years when everything was a musical is that let's just do a musical about that do you know about the popularity of musicals in 1952 when this came out had like the big like popular phase ended no i think that it's still like going on during the 50s you know uh because you can think that during the 60s they were still like just super strong i mean you have my fair lady in 64 uh when was uh 61 west side story so until mid 60s musicals were still like one of the biggest things it looks like this director yeah, continue to do. Oh my gosh, he did Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I was raised Mormon. I don't know if we've mentioned that on the podcast, but Mormons are really weird about like movies and what you can watch. And this, for whatever reason, is approved because it's very family friendly. So I saw that movie like a hundred times as a kid. Wow. Okay. That's interesting. And he did Funny Face. He did a lot with Fred Astaire and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, it looks like a checking at least Gene Kelly yeah this movie is from Metro uh, they say that 53 to 57 is a decline of the Hollywood musical 53 to 57 so this was at the heyday this was like yeah. when musicals were big were everything yeah so Jose did you like it let me let me first say that we had both seen this movie before I can't remember specifically when I saw it but I'm guessing it was around 2007 2008 so it's been a while for me yeah, for me, it was also around that time. It was like 15 years at least, you know, since I watched it. And I wasn't completely sure. I remember it's like when I watched it the last time, I liked it more than I thought that I was going to be like liking it. And I also appreciated it being more about Hollywood as a concept than about like the characters. I still think that it's a bit of a masturbatory exercise. You know, it's about Hollywood, like, as you say, like, La La Land doesn't think about, like, how destructive Hollywood is, you know, or the studio system was. It's not Sunset Boulevard, you know, it's that this is, like, a very realistic perspective about what Hollywood is. That you have, like, this, like, chorus girl that suddenly, because of opportunities and people that believe in her, seems up, like, having a career, you know, in the talkies. Um, so I did enjoy it. I had a good time watching it. So I had a very similar experience. Um, I watched this for the first and only time because somebody I respected was like, no, no you should check this out. And I remember all I remembered about the film was like, oh, wow, I enjoyed that a lot, way more than I expected. And this time I also enjoyed it for the most part. Um, it is a good movie. Like, it's just, objectively, it's a good movie. But there were th some things that bothered me, like um, that slapstick humor that Cosmos does, like the funny faces and the dances where he, you know, breaks through a wall and blah, blah, blah. I That is not my personal taste in comedy. I don't think it's very intelligent comedy to, like, make a funny face and expect people to laugh. But overall, I, I enjoyed it. It's a good movie. I... 
I know nothing about musicals, so I can't even like comment on if this was influential or not. I mean, if musicals had another couple years, <laughs> probably not, but. <laughs> well, I think that it was not a huge hit when it was released. I think that it just became like a bit more of a cult classic on time, you know, because especially like just being made with pieces of other musicals is like its value comes a lot from what it's representing. But I have to say, like the songs, I mean, I, I like musicals and when I go to these musical days in gay bars, is that there is many of the pieces that they see here that they play all the time. You know, like Good Morning, you know, Make Them Laugh. Except like Gora Dance, except Gora Dance is I think that everything from this musical is played. It's funny because before we started recording, we were talking about two different operas that we've both seen and how like one of them, Carmen, you know basically all of those songs, like you know them. Yeah. You, regardless of whether or not you've seen this film, know the majority of these songs, like from pop culture, from, I don't know, even like SNL skits, they're like, they're truly, people overuse this word so much these days, but they are iconic, like literally the definition of an icon. Yeah, I could say that, could you say that probably this is like the most well-known Hollywood musical? Along maybe the sound of music? Yeah, probably the sound of music is first, but singing in the rain, it's like ubiquitous. I mean, when you think of musicals, you think about this. Yeah, yeah. Also, I have never seen the sound of music. <laughs> what the... Okay. <laughs> Alright, I'm not going to be like making you watch the sound of music, but yeah, I actually went to see the last time that I watched it. I think that it was uh, at the Castro Theater in a sing along. Those are cute, you know, they're like fun. But yeah, no, I'm not going to be like make you watch. I'm having to discuss the sound of music. I will let this one slide. A comedian or somebody talking on a talk show recently that was like, she thought that sound of music was two cassettes. And oh. she never knew about the second one. And then she thought she was seeing part two. And she's like, part two got so dark. I love that you are like just mentioning one of the sections of This American Life right now. I saw mine on the Graham Norton show. Well, I can assure you, I can send you like the episode because I released into it like three or four months ago that they actually did that. Like when she grew up, is that like they only had like the first tape and then they watched yeah. like together with the reporter about like, oh, let's see how this is. And for her, she was in love with the postman. And is that like when he goes, like, he was a Nazi all along. <laughs> Spoiler alert, I haven't seen it. Well, now you know that there is a postman and it is a Nazi. And the second tape, not on the first one. Uh, but no, I I just think that it's in, it's, it has like all of the elements, you know, it's like now if we go back to uh, talking about the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, you know, or we go to talk about like Saturday Island, about like how these are like by the book and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari created the book is that I just feel that Singing in the Rain is a by the manual good musical. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also say that Hollywood in the 50s was primarily, I hope people don't get upset about this, but Hollywood was focused on entertainment primarily, yeah. not not necessarily a lot of substance. I mean, Ingmar Bergman was across the pond in Europe focusing on like religion and incest, but that's not what Hollywood was doing. <laughs> um, 
So I feel like as a celebration of Hollywood at the peak of the musical time period, we have to take into account what this film was trying to do and did it succeed at that? And yeah, it, it succeeded brilliantly at what it was trying to do, which was to be entertaining and have good musical or good vocals and blah, blah, blah. You remember, you remember in Silverlining's playbook when they start doing like the tap dance number, they are watching a movie on the TV. That movie is singing in the rain. Is it really? <laughs> it's, yeah, it, because it's Cosmos and Dawn that they actually jump into the desk and they start like just tap dancing like this. When they were taking elocution lessons, I actually really liked that dance. Yeah. I mean, it's super cute. But the thing is, like, those numbers, they don't progress the story. You know, that's well, the... They don't at all. And now it makes sense that they were just, like, grabbing these songs people have written not for this movie. Yeah. And, but it's... I don't know. I mean, I... I like it, you know, I like that it's like it's that they could actually play out like something about like they give you an errand, you know, like some homework about like, you have to come up with a movie. Here you go. Ten songs that you have to use and they come up with something that is like it's it's good is that you are fairly smart about like what you came with because you make a movie about musicals happening, you know, not only about like the story of the character. So I think that it's. I won't give her, I won't give you like a lot of credit from the perspective that this reinvented Hollywood or anything like that, but it's a good resourceful movie from the perspective of making the most from the limited tools that you're given. Yeah, I agree. And I feel like we've seen other films like this that they're like, yeah, it's good. And there's not much to say about it. Hmm. I'm curious, to, I didn't look to see if it had won any awards, do you know? Uh, it was nominated, uh, what is it called, like the Lina was nominated to an Oscar. Apparently, it won an honorary award at the 1998 Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> but it's what I was telling you, is like it's such an iconic, uh, how do you say, like musical. But it's something that only time put it in perspective. Because probably if you go like at that time, it's like, what the fuck, what is the story here? You know, I could be watching like other musicals that they have a bit more like the numbers are associated more like with the story per se. I have to clear this up. I was actually on the director's IMDb page. He won an honorary award in 1998. Oh, okay, not the movie. Not that makes <laughs> much more sense. <laughs> yeah, that would have been weird. <laughs> Uh, should we go over the questions? I mean, I don't know if there is like too much more to say about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a solid musical, even for people who don't like musicals. How about that? Like you? Like me. Like, I I enjoyed watching this film. I'm not going to like watch it again tomorrow, but uh, it, it's decent. And I was very charmed by Gene Kelly. Good Lord, that dude was handsome. Yeah, it's what I was yeah. telling my boyfriend. He's like, that, that guy is super charming like super dreamy it's almost like a Ewan McGregor in a in a Moline Rose yeah maybe a man that sings is sexy <laughs> maybe maybe you know maybe there is some kind of charm to that uh, oh yeah I read a couple of other things about this movie that I need to share about like the uh relationship between like the actors you know, Gene Kelly was like a bit more like the director like the dancing directing oh I wondered about his directing credit that makes sense if yeah. he was a great director. 
Oh, yeah, it's amazing. But basically, uh, he came up with the dance number for Maiden Love, like the one that's a uh, uh, cosmos ends up like just walking on the wall and just somersaulting. You know, that it was gorgeous. That you was know, very like, impressive. Yeah. And parkour hadn't even been invented yet. Yeah, that's true. It's like he was like ahead of his time. But uh, what he says is like he actually collapsed of exhaustion afterwards because he used to do like those things when he was a professional dancer. But that point, he was like smoking four packs of cigarettes a day. And afterwards, he had to actually just be like taken to the hospital and rested like for three or four days. And fun enough, they lost the recording of it. So they had to do it again after he was like just discharged from the hospital. Oh, poor guy. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that I heard is that the Debbie just go. Uh, crap. David Jones was it? Yeah, David Reynolds. Uh, she used to be a gymnast. She was not a professional dancer. And Jim Kelly got like really frustrated with her when they started like rehearsing and everything, to the point that she ran away crying. And uh, she actually hid below a, a piano in the studio. <laughs> and who found it was Fred Astaire. That it was also of a metropolitan mayor. She actually told the story, and Fred Astaire was his person, her personal trainer. Wow. Yeah. It must have been like crazy on those studio lots back in the day. Just like <laughs> Fred Astaire found me hiding under a piano. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I found it like pretty fascinating. There were like two things that I got wrong of this that I thought that initially was designed with the idea of being recorded in black and white and that they changed, you know, like decisions along the way and they had to resume. And I think that no, that it was like just something like from scratch was going to be in color. And then the other part, I had heard that the rain was supposed to be milk. I don't know, you had heard that one? Like the, when he's literally singing in the rain? Yeah. But no, it's not true. But if you feel it's like it's so super visible, silent. is that where the myth comes from? Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing, it's like it's super visible. You know, it's like it's really well I mean it reflects a lot, you know, and it's like when you think about movies, it's like you don't usually have that kind of lining when there is rain. Right. It's a bit more like just to do kind of thing, or you have like a curtain in front of the of the camera for just giving it like more intensity. And in this case it's like no, it's super intense, is that you see it everywhere but i said that no that was like a complete myth the only meal that you see in the whole movie is when they are having like randomly like a glass of meat the three of them but you see myths don't pop up around films that aren't uh long not long lasting but like live in the collective consciousness of pop culture because this is a, this film is what 70 years old this year holy shit you're absolutely right 70 years old yeah, it's funny that when we're talking about uh, this film, when I was watching it with my boyfriend, I was telling him, look, one thing that I always think when I watch a film pre-60s, pre-60s, I just think that all of these people that they're acting with putting that amount of energy, all of them are deaf. Debbie Reynolds just died like two years ago, right? I think so, yeah. Probably she was Did the she one. Did die that... before or after uh, the famous daughter, Leia? I think that it was after, now that you say it. I think so, Carrie I think Fisher. she had her daughter. Anyway, yeah. it doesn't matter, but yeah, everyone in this film is dead. Yeah, 
And it's a pretty negative, you know, like thought when it's such a happy film. But it's like, no, everyone is dead. Yeah. I was actually watching, I can't remember what it was, but it was like a movie from the 2000s a few weeks ago, and there were a lot of dogs in it. And I got all sad because I was like, all those dogs are dead. <laughs> I mean, there is a small difference, you know, like dogs are not aware of the war that I did, you know? The difference is I like dogs. Oh, sorry. Yeah, you don't I like musicals. <laughs> okay, that's fair. People, I don't like. Um, so you said that you will watch this again, but not right now. No, what I said is I enjoyed it. It's not like I'm going to run out and rewatch it again. I, well, I mean, if we're getting to that question, I would rewatch this again. Yes, in like okay. several years from now, when I forget it. That is not going to be hard, you know. But uh, and I'm not saying that as a bad thing. But yeah, yeah, I I agree with you. I will watch it again. As I told you, it's like, it was enjoyable. Is that the time flew by? Except those ten minutes of Gotta Dance, everything else was like, this is super enjoyable, and the pace is pretty good. It's really funny. So yeah, uh, would you recommend it? If someone came up to me and said, hey, I'm interested in the musical genre, but I've never seen one, can you recommend one? I'd be like, well, first check Dancer in the Dark, <laughs> then the Polish film about killer mermaids, and then Singing in the Rain. <laughs> I could definitely recommend this before the others. You know, probably yeah, it would no, be like, be, yeah, probably it would be like just between this and Moline Rose, because Moline Rose is a bit more modern. You know, and it's also like just with songs that everyone knows. Yeah, that's a good like intro, like a first step in the musicals. And then if you're like, yeah, you like musicals, watch this. Yeah. Um, would you remember it? I'm gonna have to say no because I didn't remember a single plot point from the first time I watched it. All I remembered was my reaction that I liked that. That's yeah. it. I had to go with yes. I don't remember like all the details, but I remember it's like hey, this is a movie about the transition from a silent field to a talkie, and the main actress cannot sing, so they just pick another actress and they just use it as a voice. One quick question: In Sunset Boulevard, why did she have to stop performing? Was it because she couldn't sing or couldn't like speak well? It was the uh, the style of acting. You know, she was like just completely over overacting and everything. And also they mention uh, Cecile B. DeMille, that he is like directly in the movie, he actually says is that she was like super talented at the beginning, but Hollywood broke her completely. And at the end, we just disposed of her when we saw that we couldn't get like anything else that it would actually appeal to the current audience. God, that movie's so artist, good. The artist also takes place during this time? Yeah. He's just 25 or something, and he has like the fear of what is going to happen when the talkies arrive. It's interesting. We should watch more films about that time period because it is interesting. Like this entire population of actors kind of just all of a became obsolete. And yeah, anyway. Yeah, like everyone, you know, is like Hollywood at that point was already with the. Uh, uh, a star mentality, you know, and it's like they created these deities and then just dispose it from one day to the next. It's fascinating. I'm pretty sure that also in the 50s with the decline of the musicals, like late like 50s, as we were saying, as second of all, is that maybe they did like something similar with Gene Kelly and many others. About like, eh, you can just. Yeah, we're just, eh. yeah, we'll we're good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, 
So there, I, you know that I wouldn't be opposed. You know, I will watch Sunset Boulevard tomorrow, or today even. Well, not today, tomorrow, or Friday. Uh, is there anything artistic about it? Yeah, I mean, the dancing, again, it's not my taste of entertainment, but it's it's good. I was actually kind of blown away by both Cosmos and Don in that, that uh, dance number where they bury the elocution teacher with a bunch of stuff and throw garbage on him. Yeah, It's not as, as vulgar as that. It's kind of cool, but I was <laughs> like, wow, you guys are like talented. Yeah, no, I agree. The dance numbers that I'm seeing, I think the uh, photography on uh like when they're like singing and dancing in the rain i thought it like this is pretty well made i found super tacky the use of a green screen <laughs> i don't know if you realize <laughs> about those you man you have to be forgiving <laughs> you have to be forgiving but it's like dude if it's going to look like this maybe you don't need to use it but it's like well they're trying to just be a bit more like modernist and cool so what else uh, but yeah, overall, I think that is it's iconic because I think that artistically is pretty good. You know, when it comes to actually the art of singing and dancing. Yeah, I would I would argue that many people will point to this as like a very important entry into American cinema as kind of being the best at what it was, which is a musical. So like, it's not super important in terms of substance and like did this make me think differently about myself and other people no it didn't but it's it's a wonderful example of what american musicals could be at the height of american musicals yeah as you said is like musicals usually don't have that protection except if they are directed by last one trio that even like a even like a perfume commercial would have that protection if last one trio was the director have to watch york get her neck broken again it's spoiler alert uh, do you think that this is a, theme, a timeless piece? I would have to say yes. I mean, we're watching it 70 years later. We know the songs. It's, I mean, people are going to remember this film forever. It's it's stuck in both the 1950s and the 1920s, which is... <laughs> um, but it's it's survived the test of time already. Yeah, it's it's timeless. Yeah, no, I fully agree. I think there is like the advantage of when you do something that was about a prior period of time, you know. And the funny thing is, like at that time in '52, is that there would be people that they actually watched the jazz singer when it was released. Well, if you think it was only like 27 years after the film takes place, so that would be like us watching a movie today about the late 1980s. No, oh, the late the 90s. 90s. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> that's horrifying. Yeah, that's the reason don't say it because I was doing like the same mental calculation and it was like I don't want to think that we are like right now if we think about like the late 90s, if we think about like I don't know, okay, computer, it's like people in 52 would actually think about the jazz singer. I don't like it. I don't like it. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> uh would you turn this into a TV show? I would never watch that TV show, so no. <laughs> I, I don't think there's enough there. I mean, after you explain that this is basically a patchwork of pre-existing songs and stuff, it works as a film, but I don't think there's enough there to stretch this out into a series. Yeah, I agree with you. It's like with other ones, I can be like more generous about like, well, you can extend. No, this is good. The, I, 
I don't think that there is any way of stretching this instead of just, I mean, the only thing is like throwing even like more songs into it. But I don't think that there is any character that I thought, oh, this could have been developed more if he had more time. If I had to watch more of Cosmos making funny faces, I would just, no, no. Eh, it was fine, you know, I was not laughing, but I was like, well, I see where they're coming from, you know? Like humor is always like pretty associated with the time, you know, where it actually just took place, so. It was interesting that song he's, he's saying about how his dad told him, make him laugh. This make him laugh. Dad told him to be an actor, but be a comedian because serious actors can't afford to eat. And I was like, oh, so they're just admitting these people sold out. There's no substance here. Got it. No, I mean, basically, it's, uh, I think they actually rewrote the script like multiple times about like what we're doing until they thought about like just making like a vaudeville actor that becomes, that instead of trying to become like a more serious actor, he brings the vaudeville aspect of his life into the work. Who, who is the creator of Fleabag? Oh, Phoebe, uh... yeah. So I watched an episode of the Graham Norton show right after I watched this movie and it had the cast of the latest James Bond film on. And oh. they talked about how they brought her on late and she rewrote the script and made it like better. And I was literally like thinking for a while, what if Phoebe Foster Wallace was like invited onto the studio lot and they said, help us make this better. What would she have done? I don't know, but it was an interesting like mental exercise I went through today. I have to say, did you watch No Time to Die? I think that is called. Well, I slept through a pretty big portion because my husband likes to go to midnight midnight screenings. God. Uh, I I expected it better, and it was also like three hours or three hours and a half. It was like insultingly long. You know, but I was thinking, well, I mean, there are like things that I thought that I thought, okay, this is cool. Is that basically he's not a womanizer, he's not treating women as objects. You know, there is okay, there is a bit of a, you know, like kind of sign that this was written by a woman knowing what she was doing. You know, but overall, I found the movie boring. Forgettable. Yeah. Sure, forgettable, boring, I don't know exactly what. Is it? The only thing I like looking at Daniel Craig and watching Leia Sido, is that how you say her name? I love the fact that she came back for a second film, which hadn't happened in James Bond history, and they turned the women into human beings instead of pussy oh, galore. Yeah, no, that's fair, that's fair. Uh, on what movie was he initially? What was the first time? Uh, Spectre. She was first in Spectre. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't watch Spectre. God. You have to watch it for the homoerotic scene with Javier Bardem and Daniel Craig. It's so sexy. But wasn't Javier Bardem the one in, uh, on uh, Skyfall? Shoot, you're right. To be honest, the only Daniel Craig Bond film I really liked was the first one. The rest blend together 100% for me. So, bits basically, Leah Sudos and Christopher Walls they come back from a from a Spectre. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. So this is a bit more of a continuation, and then Rami Malek plays like probably one of the dumbest villains ever in a James Bond movie. And he's so proud of it. You should hear him talk. He's so fucking pretentious. Anyway, I didn't mean to. No, no, no. I mean, it, it's fine. But... <laughs> but the thing is, like, I, I love Fleabag, you know, it's like, and I, 
I also gave it a chance to Killing Eve, that is also written by her. Oh, and, I didn't know that. Yeah, and I couldn't really get into it. I found it's like, is this a comedy? Is this like the drama in these guys? I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm watching, but I don't. Then, oh, she confuses you. You look at her and you think you're supposed to laugh. <laughs> and then you look at the actress that plays Eve and, and you're like, this is serious. Wait, Sandra O's oh here. <laughs> well, okay, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, Jodie Comer, what was Villeneuve? Was the the character? She did something else. Oh, she was on Free Guy. Free Guy. She was also she's in the new uh, Ben Affleck Matt Damon film where he plays like a king. Matt Damon does, and also she was in that hugely popular BBC series Doctor. Doctor Who. No, it was about a doctor, a female doctor, who gets cheated on. Her husband cheats with a 15-year-old girl oh, and she yeah. destroys their lives, and it's so satisfying. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, last question. Do you think this movie could have been better? I mean, yeah, if they had decided to, like, start from scratch and, like, had a more cohesive approach probably it would make more sense like seriously the fact you told me this is a collection of discarded songs i was like oh okay it displays so much because yeah. otherwise it's just like oh there was some acting now there's going to be a song oh there's some acting now there's going to be a song uh, i'm going to go with yes but not so fundamental the only thing that i could change in this musical because if they were to do it from scratch they wouldn't have made this story you know, because you even had to think that it's a bit meta that actually Gene Kelly is someone that also I think that he came from just variety shows and he had a career in Hollywood thanks to the kind of background that he had before. Uh, that I don't think that they would have done this purposefully. That's that actually the funniest, in my opinion, the funniest part of the film was when he's already super famous and a journalist says, tell us how you got here. And he makes up all these lies about how he was raised and his past. But then what you're seeing on the screen is the truth, which is like, that was like, pretty good. Like, yeah. That is Gene Kelly's story that he just kind of worked his way up from doing stupid variety shows. That's, that's smart. Yeah. So uh, I don't think that they will have landed at the same spot. I think that the landing is pretty good. The only thing that it would have changed in this movie is removing that Broadway show. Is that, that was like one too many. I, I honestly wondered, I thought, is Jose gonna love this or find it as, it's not like bad. It was just, it's very confusing to me and very long. Well, but just thing is that you remember that then they actually go into this kind of uh, abstract stage in the middle of it, the sister like just having like this piece of clothing and the piece of clothing. What is the point of this? It's like, why do you need 10 minutes of this? And the only thing that you can think is that, hey, look on this one, is that you see like colors like popping up, you know, it's super visually appealing. And they are trying to just hook the audience with that. But it doesn't have to do anything. If I, you know, like back in the day, like the theaters that they used to have, like these shots of the movie, like the friends, the still friends, is like, if you see like the still friends and you see that one, it's like, what the fuck is this? And where is this woman? Because this woman is only on this scene. And she doesn't even sing. Yeah, I was I was extremely confused, not gonna lie. They could have yeah. gotten rid of it. They could have done that in like a 45 second montage. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, I think when they talk about, like, hey, this is what we're going to be like doing with the amount of the movie, blah, blah, blah. The 
don't do any kind of overarching narrative. It's still like the dueling cavalier, but the singing cavalier. Yeah, they never show a cohesive idea of what the remade film looks like. And I was like, how is this incorporating modern dance into a period piece? Like, I was like, okay, you didn't try that hard to wrap up this plot line, but whatever. Yeah, so for me, it's yes, but it's not a big yes. It's a bit more about like, it's pretty clear that you actually kept pushing for this, like trying to appeal like the sensibilities of what was like the audience there. It was not something about like, we don't fucking care. You know, it's not like Sunset Boulevard. It's like, we don't care about like, the sensibility. We just want to do this. Also, if they cut that 10 minute scene, it would reduce the film to an hour and 36 minutes, which I think is the longest a musical should ever be, is 90 minutes. <laughs> okay, that's fair. But you actually like uh, Molly Bruce. Yes, but that's the exception, not the rule. Okay, no, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, so, ba, 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 that's the last question. So, before we score, uh, I was last week the one to ask if you remember a movie. Do you have any movie that you want to see if I remember? I sure do. Let me pull it up. Tell me what you remember about Repulsion. Oh, that's a good one. Okay, Repulsion was the one with Catherine Deneuve, like extremely young. Sure was. Because Catherine Deneuve. And basically, oh God, it's in Paris because it's Catherine Deneuve. So, uh, and she's a Roman young... Right. Oh, sorry, you're supposed to be telling me. Oh, it was Polanski. I so, ask. I don't know. I don't remember. He may be. He may, he may be. But uh, she lives in an apartment, and she started like just going crazy in there. She started like just having like hallucinations about like what is happening in the apartment, almost like if the apartment was alive. But I don't remember anything else. <laughs> I don't even know if, if that's what doesn't, I remember. Doesn't she work in a hair salon, and she moves into her own place? Yeah. But then she's convinced that somebody's trying to break into her apartment and kill her, so she puts like the bookcase in front of the door. Yeah. And we don't know if she's like schizophrenic or if somebody's actually trying to kill her. Because she does have a male suitor, I think. The answer is no. We don't remember this film. <laughs> I thought that you would, you know, as you actually asked about nope. it. Nope. Nope. I asked because I couldn't remember anything specific besides her losing her mind in her apartment after she blockaded the, the door. That's it. That's all I got. Yeah, and you remember more than me because I didn't even remember the scene locked the door. So, what are you doing? <laughs> cool. Uh, should we score these? Shoot. I was unprepared with the synopsis and my score. Um, okay. Let's do it. This was your pick, so I score first. You know that I say a 7.5 is a good film. I'm going to give this an eight because oh. it's not my cup of tea, but it's clearly important in terms of musicals. I've said this like nine times, but it stood the test of time. I think people will be as interested in this film like in 1952 today and in 2052. So, yeah. um, funny enough, my score is also an eight. It's like I wish that it was a bit better, you know? But once again, it's like doing this with the pieces that they were given and just becoming like more and more iconic with time. 
is just proof, you know, like the quality of what they created. That it was hard to see. Like usually when when you look at an impressionist, an impressionist painting, and you're like too close, you cannot really appreciate what exactly it truly is. I think that that was like the same thing when they released this movie about like this is garbage. I mean, I don't think that anyone said that this is garbage, but they basically say it's like, hey, there's a lot of songs that they don't relate to each other, and it's about Hollywood, and the story is not that big, and it's like now putting in perspective, it's like, ah, okay, that's smart. In Clueless, they call certain women full-on Monets, and when somebody doesn't understand, they say, why? Because from far away, it looks all right, but up close, it's a big mess. <laughs> I remember that joke. That's a pretty good one. So, as this was my pick, what are we going to be watching next? I am so excited. We are going back to the world of Paul Verhoeven, uh, to a classic, Basic Instinct. I've never seen it, so I'm so stoked. So stoked. Because I was going to pick L, and I was like, no, let's pick another one. <laughs> you cannot pick L ever again. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Let me just put it here. The same way that I'm not going to be like picking the Red Curtain trilogy ever again. <laughs> you know, he said you cannot pick that. Okay. Thank God. Let's just agree. Okay. It's not be Russia and Ukraine. Let's just yeah. Let's see. You know, is that you don't get you don't get in NATO. You know, you don't pick L. Um, you know, I won in base, San Francisco. Come on. Well, this was a good conversation. I'm pretty happy to hear that you like it. I was like a bit hesitant in the middle of it. I was telling my boyfriend, he's going to hate it. He's going to hate it almost to the level of the greatest show on earth <laughs> i will never hate anything as much as i hate the show, except celine diango's boat <laughs> well both of them they're like almost three hours but at least i understood the greatest show on earth i didn't understand the other one okay that's fair <laughs> there was something to be understood if it was something that deserved to be told probably not but yeah <laughs> Come on. Uh, well, and to everyone out there listening to us, get alive. Thank you so much for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, I don't know, whatever. Uh, just survive. Okay. <laughs> Bye.